This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Chris, it's good to see you again, man. It has been too long since we've recorded something. I know. I get, I've gotten to see you a few times, but we haven't recorded in a while. So I'm, I'm glad we get a chance. Yeah, I'm grateful for that. I I saw that you released a a note via your Substack, but just an update, right, for everybody on kind of what's happening and why I haven't been posting as much. Yeah, which is you've been in the middle of a move and you're only a little more than half an hour down the road from me now, which I'm I'm thrilled about. I'm sorry for my friends in Tulsa. I know they're going to miss miss the greens, but man, no, I'm so they're grateful. Miss, they're going to miss exactly <laughs> four fifths of the greens. Okay, maybe five sixths if they if they know Augie. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you're here. We're um, one of the ways that I've been able to see you is. Of course, coming by the house and helping in very minor ways <laughs> with some unpacking and rearranging. Day for sure. But one of the great joys that I had um, the other day when I was at the house, I was unboxing things in your office and uh, books, right? And of course, one of the things that abounds there is journals that you have kept, which I'm, by the way, super impressed by, because I mean, these things, you have journals that are years and years and years old. Yeah. The one in question is 20 years old. It's, it was given <laughs> to me in May of 03. And it is this journal in question that I can't even remember why, but not that long ago, right? Just a few months ago, I was at your house in Tulsa and yeah. we stumbled upon this. I think the complication maybe. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Of course, convocation. And so we're there and I just, I, I would like you to read the opening line for page one of this journal. Top of the page. You're in my office, right? This is a few months ago. Now you're in my office. You see all these journals. You're like, what are these? And I was like, oh, these, these will be great. I hadn't read them in years. I opened the first one up, which was this one, which again was yeah. now almost exactly, almost to the day 20 years ago that it was given. I mean, this moment for me was akin to the, like I laid the Bible open and the fan blew the pages and here it was <laughs> like, it was what I needed. Yes. <laughs> the opening line is abandonment belongs to intimacy. <laughs> 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 the abandonment belongs to intimacy. Oh, and and as I don't know if you noticed this at the time or if we discussed it, but I have at some point I went back and added various. I made edits to that line. So it, oh no, I don't remember that. Now reads there is an intimacy or there is an abandonment that belongs to intimacy. So I was qualified. <laughs> but <laughs> I just, I mean, I know it's not what we're going to do today, but. I just want to put put my vote in that we do a, a podcast series that is solely given to revisiting these old journals um, Man, because yes. oh, I just, God. I mean, <laughs> I just think, oh my gosh, I love that for so many reasons, not least of which is just the pretension of that line being the opening line of a journal. <laughs> <laughs> 
pretension slash, you know, genius or okay. <laughs> well, I Maybe guess pretension more than genius. <laughs> oh, but, I mean, I've I've looked through it today because I again we found it, and there are so many. There's a Carl Jung quote on page three. Is the chart in that journal? Yes, the chart is. It's okay. It's, well, that's also. In, I, I don't know. We need to like include a picture of this or something in the show notes or however that goes. But y'all, I cannot describe how amazing. I mean, I say chart. I'm being. I'm using that word very loosely <laughs> because it is it's, it's insane. Like the crazy meme, you know. The, the it really is. Like, let me see if I can hold it up for you. I, I didn't count them because there are so many small arrows that I actually can't count them all. But there are dozens of arrows, actually, on this page. I would say dozens and every of arrows. Arrow, I think except for maybe one or two, every arrow is double-sided. <laughs> <laughs> there are, just to describe it, there are words everywhere. There are arrows running through words I mean, I'm looking at it here on the screen. I'm pretty sure there are arrows that are not even connected to words, and they're just running in every possible direction. <laughs> I'll try it, to I'll try to add it to the show notes. Um, I can't even make out all that's written here for, but it's an outline for something. <laughs> <laughs> and it, there's a there's a much less busy one on the next page, which okay, I, can, I can make uh, out like ministry in that. And one of those yeah, were one of those. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it's uh wow. Yes. I, I think it's just what the, the world has been wanting is a glimpse into my, you know, deep past, the, the reflections of my very immature, undeveloped mind. Oh, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about what really matters here. Okay. So the real reason we've, we've decided to record again is um, I, the church where I serve um, we're doing our small groups reconvened after, after Holy week and our, my small group is reading through the book of Colossians. And so I had reached out to, to you, to Chris about this. And I, um, and basically I just said, you know, look, this is, this is what we're doing. And I'd love to kind of talk about it and talk through it. And we'll get into that and what that, what that looked like more. But from that, you're like, well, let's, let's just record it. Which I mean, I feel like that's what most of our, (laughs) most of our podcasts have been, right? Like we're going to talk about this anyway, so let's just record it. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to do a series and a kind of running series. We're going to do Colossians and Jude. I don't know if my small group is going to do Jude, but we're here. We're going to do Colossians and Jude. And hopefully we're going to have um, several guests, um, some of which the podcast has heard before and others, others will be first timers. But I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be I think it'll be a good time. Yeah, I, it's something I wanted to do for a long time, and it's maybe my favorite kind of conversation where we're discussing scripture, kind of reading it closely. So why don't you talk a little bit about what we did for mm-hmm. the small group, and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Yeah, add as much as you think. Uh, but basically, 
when when I was talking to you about this, one of the things that I said is I do have some apprehension about doing a book study in a small group. And part of the reason is because, you know, every book study I've been a part of in small groups has always taken kind of the same shape, mm-hmm. which is a sort of, well, let's, I mean, we, we never called it something like this in the churches that I was a part of, but basically it was like, let's start off with a kind of historical critical, <laughs> yeah. you know, context, um, background introduction. Um, and I say, start off with that. I mean, we spent probably way too much time, way too much time with that before we ever actually got into the text. Um, and then we would just, you know, verse one. Yeah. And just kind of go from there. Um, it was very, you know, whoever was leading it. I mean, it was their, their voice was, you know, was dominant, which is, which is fine. Right. But there was, it wasn't a terrible amount of discussion usually. Um, so when you and I were talking about this, you suggested the idea that, well, why don't you just begin with the end? Which for, for those of you who are familiar with the end of Colossians, that is, is especially funny. I mean, you know, let's, let's start with the conclusion. So, you know, the kind of final greetings here are, you know, going through a lot of, you know, several names, some of which some are, you know, more and less, you know, familiar with. And, but basically the idea was, as you described it, is kind of like, you know, you've seen films, you've seen TV shows, you've read novels that just throw you right at the very conclusion mm-hmm. and then kind of launch, launch in. And of course, this, this colors the way we, you know, watch the film, read yeah. the book. Yeah. Because we're saying, well, here's where we end up. How did we get here? Mm-hmm. And I love, I mean, immediately I was like, yes, <laughs> I want to do this because it, among other things, it, it makes us attentive in a particular way. I think that's the primary reason to do it or a primary reason to do it is I think Bible studies, as, as you've said already, they, I, for many of us, at least they elicit a, a kind of bad attention, like poor attention, weak attention. And we need to find ways to intensify that and sharpen it. So starting at the end is a way of, you know, saying something people do not expect you to say and therefore perking their attention, right? Like bringing them, bringing them aware. Yeah. Yeah. And so for kind of full disclosure for our listeners, we did this, um, my small group met last week. I mean, as we're recording this mm-hmm. and, um, or actually I guess the first one was, was two weeks ago now. And so, um, where we kind of started here with the end and it was, I, it was a blast. Um, Chris actually came in and, and joined us, uh, and we had a good time. And so that's kind of where we're going to launch, I think tonight's conversation from. Yeah, why don't you read just the last few verses like we did that night, and then and then we'll go from there, if you've got it in front of you. Yeah, I do. Forgive me if I butcher some of these names. So I'm going to start in, in verse 7 of chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. 
I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, greets you. These are the only ones of the circumcision among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of God, greets you. He is always striving in his prayers on your behalf, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. For I testify for him that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and and to Nympha and, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archibus, See that you complete the task that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Hmm. Yeah, so we, we one of the things that we talked about that night is rather than constructing a context, right? A, a world behind the text that makes the text make sense for us, make a certain kind of sense. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been trained, and here I'm, you know, I'm deeply indebted to Chris Thomas, my my doctor father, and that kind of literary theological school of reading. To let to do the best we can to to let the text speak for itself, right? To let the text kind of guide our reading of it, rather than starting with historical reconstructions of what occasioned the letter, you know, when Paul wrote it to whom he wrote it. Not that those questions are, are meaningless. It's just theologically, this is to me, the crucial point. This text is inspired. Our reconstructions of what made the text make sense in its original setting are not inspired. Right. Right. Uh, We, we, when we talk about scripture, we're talking about these texts. Now, of course, they, they don't come to us from nowhere. I mean, they're written by particular people in particular moments for particular reasons. And, and we, we need to honor that, right? We need to honor that. But we, we can't be enslaved to the idea that the meaning of this text is determined by what it meant in the beginning, the initial reader, and that the only way to find that is by fully reconstructing the context in which it was written. And they're and then kind of inferring from that context what these words must mean. Like that that model of reading doesn't do justice to the way the Spirit has worked in the church, or the way that this text, these texts, actually function, or the way I think that humans make meaning. So, I mean, this is not a podcast about hermeneutics. I've written about that. We've discussed it, but I, I do think. We should, we can, and should read these texts in ways that bring the persons to life. So, at one level, 
and, and I don't think it's the only one. I, I'd love for us to get to some of those other levels. But at one level, all of these names remind us of the fact of Paul's situatedness, right? Not that we're construct, fully constructing the background. We can't do that. We don't know exactly who all of these people were and what all the moves are that have led to the writing of this letter and, and it's, it's reading in these churches and in this city. But it does make clear that these are people called Paul cares deeply about. These are people whom bring comfort to Paul. I mean, that, that line, these are the only ones of the circumcision. Yeah. Who have been, and, and they have been a comfort to me. I mean, that that's such a humanizing line, right? That, that here is Paul, a Jew, a Jew of Jews, working mostly amongst Gentiles or God-fearing Gentiles. And there aren't many people who really know his language, literally or figuratively. And there aren't, uh, there aren't many people who understand what his heart is, right? And so in the language of Romans, like what he, his passion, right? My, his, his desire, that deep ache in him for the people of his flesh, as he says, but there, there aren't many people in his circle who know that, who've experienced it, so to speak, from the inside and in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that he does have these few co-workers is a comfort to him. And so I, I, we don't have to speculate about how it was comforting, but I do think it is important to, to or, or why these three and not others. And right. so on. I mean, it's easy to get carried away in those kind of background reconstructions, but I do think the text invites us part, part of what we mean when we talk about it as inspired is that it does invite us to imagine what this might mean for him in ways that humanize Paul, not so that we can get a grasp of the historical Paul. I mean, we, we don't read this as historians. We don't even read this as academics. We read this in faith, which means coming up against the humanity of these figures is a way in which the spirit is sanctifying us is, is showing us the will of God and training us to think and feel and act in ways that are faithful. Well, I, I think that's that's work worth doing, which yeah, you can and I'm, to do in that in that conversation, right? And I mean, one of the things that we said there, and I'm glad you're you know bringing this point forward because I do think that um, it's really easy to read, especially about I, I mean, so many in in scripture, but you know, the, to read about the apostles and the lives of the apostles and kind of imagine somehow their lives as not being human in the ways that ours are, (laughs) you know, something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But these are, these are people who have friendships and relationships and friendships that, you know, (laughs) don't work out. Yeah. 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 That, that, that fail. And, and, and there's all sorts of, you know, difficult things. I mean, to navigate, I mean, just the, you know, something like not, not just the relationships that we've mentioned here, but I mean, thinking about Paul who's writing, but it's not, it's not like a church in Colossae, right? Like go before the congregation and, you know, all of them. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of folks here, 
a lot of a lot of folks who are meeting in different homes. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, um, the reference to like Nympha and the church in her house. Which again, I should say, I mean, I'm reading this as a theologian and as a preacher. Mm. I, I, I've read a lot of the scholarship, the biblical study scholarship, and there are, of course, you know, kind of endless works that that try to reproduce some context in which it makes sense. You know, one of the arguments is it's pretty clear that Paul is writing this from prison. We'll come to that line. Remember my chains in a moment. But, you know, which imprisonment was it? Where was he? You know, is this Rome or not? Is it Ephesus? Like, where where is he imprisoned when he's writing this? And, you know, what's the occasion and so on? But I, all of those things interest me. But I think that in, in terms of ecclesial readings, readings that are readings of faith, we, we have to ask why we're being told what we're told without um, trying to, again, trying to excavate the history behind it to get a sense of what that history can tell us, letting the text itself inform us. And so reading this text with other texts, if we do that, if we kind of do a cross-referencing, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that there are a number of people in this list that we know, well, the other texts suggest Paul has difficulty with, Acts in particular. So right. Mark, John Mark, is related to Barnabas, right? And in Acts, I can't remember the chapter, but Paul and Barnabas split over this in contention. They go their separate ways. And Barnabas I mean, is, is the one who brought Paul to the faith community, I mean, to, to the church, right? And Barnabas is known as that kind of bridge-building figure. And because Paul's frustration with Mark he not only breaks with Mark, he breaks with Barnabas. They, they, the contention is sharp between them. But then we also have this reference to Demas, which right. in the pastorals, Paul will say, you know, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Only Luke is with me. And, you know, so there's this, this way in which even these names recall for us that, that experience that you're, that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's, there's a surprising amount here. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I feel like <laughs> I, I shouldn't be surprised, but when you and I were even talking about this, I mean, and talking about beginning with the end, just that remember my chains, you suggested, you're like, oh, you could do, you could do this entire cycle and more of your, your small group just on this line. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's maybe sort of lightly touch on that even right now. And then we'll, we, we, we can come back to it even again. Yeah. So he ends, he ends like the letter with that. Remember my chains. And, and there are just endless ways or almost endless ways to hear that line. Right. And I think there are levels of significance. Some of which would not even have occurred to Paul. If you'd caught him in the moment that he's pinning it, speaking it. You know, he he wouldn't have been, couldn't have been attuned to all that resonates in that, in that yeah. one line. One one of the ways that I, I I think it's it's helpful, at least sometimes, is to imagine these lines as if we were actors who were about to perform them, and various yeah. ways in which they might be performed. Right. So that line, "Remember my chains," 
you know, if, if we were to try to cast this in the harshest, the most negative light, if we were to, were to take, take the tack that Paul is manipulative or Paul is to use his suffering to his advantage, right? To, to leverage these people. I mean, you could hear this as a, as a kind of, you know, what we, what we might call a humble brag or uh, throwing his weight around, right? That I, I'm, I'm the one suffering here. Take me seriously. Right. I don't, I don't think that's the best way to read it or even necessarily a right way to read it. But I, I do think, the practice of imagining different tones helps us to kind of grapple with what is there and then to start to work through the text, asking which tone makes the, the most harmonious sense of the whole. Mm-hmm. If we hear this entire letter and then the entire Pauline corpus, if we start to hear these tones, how does it resound? Right. I mean, Origen, I'm not drawing that analogy from nowhere. Origen in his commentary on Matthew, he talks specifically about that, that the gospels or the scriptures are a musical instrument that you have to learn to play well. You have to learn to play skillfully. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's a matter of, you know, performing these notes differently, right? And with different tones and rhythms. So I, I think if we were to, again, cast it in a negative or, or even harsh light, I mean, this could be Paul if not browbeating them kind of impressing on them, the fact that he, he's the one with skin in the game. Yeah. But it also could be um, a cry much more positively or warmly. It it could be a cry of need, right? That Paul is, is feeling the weight of this, that, that he's, he's overwhelmed by what he's suffering. Right. And it's a, it's a cry that awakens pity in us or something, something like pity. And I don't think those are the only two options by any means. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which this, that one line, remember my chains can, can be heard. I mean, it can Mm -hmm. be heard politically and it it can be heard pastorally. And I don't know that any of those are mutually exclusive. Like they're, they're obviously we all recognize that in our day-to-day communications. Like we, we say things, that are, are many sided, right? Oh yeah. That are, that are gnarled or in conflicted even. So I, I don't, I don't think we have to decide. I don't think that's, that's the point. I think it is to take seriously to kind of hold that line in our hands and, and consider it's different possibilities. And not only in terms of Paul's tone or Paul's intention, but also in in terms of its kind of theological and spiritual ramifications. Like remember my chains, I think is more than just a reminder that Paul is in prison and they should know that he's in prison. It's more than just a, however he intends it and whatever tone it's spoken in, it's more than just recalling of a historical detail. There's a mystical depth here in which he's he's calling them to participate in his participation in Jesus sufferings. Right. That that follow me as I follow Christ is suffer with me as I suffer Christ's sufferings for you. Mm-hmm. And remember my chains is uh, I think there's a, there are dimensions here that are beyond the merely 
no he's not simply describing the details of his life right there there's a because the spirit is at work in it at work in those words and at work in the 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 man who's speaking them and the community who's hearing them and at work in us that those words have have depth endless depth right endless depth yeah. i think i'm with origin and maximus here that you know the meanings of scripture are infinite because the the one who is giving them to us and helping us to receive them is infinite. Yeah. Which I think is, is incredibly liberating. I mean, again, I know this isn't a series on, on hermeneutics, but to that point, I mean, I think this is, we do, we do well, I mean, for ourselves and our, our communities and congregations I mean, that, that seems to me to be part and parcel of reading this in faith. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and taking seriously, taking seriously the divine life that has inspired this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things too, I mean, you're just riffing, not quite different, but just, I mean, this Paul is, as he, as he says, he is an apostle by the will of God, right? And this is a mark of this is a mark of the apostles. I mean, this, this is what happens to yeah, those who yeah. join in Christ's life. That's right. And the, the will of God works itself out of the world in these really messy, entangled ways. I mean, like we, we've talked a, a bit about Demas who will forsake him and John Mark, of course, and Barnabas that he splits with. But there's also a reference here to Onesimus. Whom he yeah, calls okay, good. faithful and beloved brother. And we know from his letter to Philemon, right, that Onesimus is, is at least at some point regarded as unfaithful. Now, we don't know for sure that Onesimus was a runaway slave, although that's a, a, a common reading. And, and there's there are good reasons for reading it that way. It's just not a it's not as cut and dried as we often think it is. But regardless, Onesimus is being reconciled to Philemon, right, as a brother. And here Paul names him specifically, faithful and beloved brother. And I think the yeah. let's say for let's say that Onesimus is a runaway slave who has been restored and now has been taken into Paul's confidence, right? That what he that Tychicus and Onesimus are the ones who are bringing the news of what has happened to Paul, right? Mm -hmm. he, Paul writes this letter, but he's not disclosing his heart. At least he's not, well, maybe I shouldn't say heart. He's not disclosing the, the scuttlebutt, right? About what's happening to him. Yeah. Or even, uh, he's, he's not giving them a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak. Right. Tychicus and Onesimus have that and they're bringing it. They will tell you about everything. Here. Everything here, right? Yeah. yeah. And Onesimus, who is one of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's from them, right? He's from among them. Mm -hmm. He belongs to them, and so for for Paul to be reiterating that he's faithful and beloved and a brother who mm -hmm. is my confidant, I mean that's incredibly empowering. Now it also is almost certainly offensive for some in that group. Or at least yeah. it's possibly offensive for some in that group who are aggrieved at what Onesimus has done, who who feel that you know he 
he got off too easily. Right. Right. Um, and I, I mean, it, it's really important again, without speculating too much or trusting too much in our speculation, it's important, I think, to speculate in ways that open up the notes in the text that are there, right? Rather than trusting to our speculation, letting the speculation draw our attention to what the text can mean, can be saying. And and one of them would be how easy it would be to judge Paul for being too easy on Onesimus and too hard on John Mark or too hard on Demas. And if you see that, if you see, if you see any particular person, any leader who seems to be playing favorites, I mean, we're all instantly like that doesn't sit well with any of us when we, when we no. see that. Right. And so there, there's no doubt in my mind that many of these people think Paul does that kind of thing. And we know like from Corinthians that, you know, Paul, was often misjudged, well, in his in his mind at least, misjudged. Yeah, right. And and I I think I mean this goes without saying. Maybe maybe it doesn't. I think it goes without saying. Like Paul is not an apostle because he's a flawless man. He's not an authoritative voice in the church because he always worked in the right spirit or made all the right decisions. And so if if we had been there as these people were and these communities were. No doubt, depending on where we were standing and what we could see and overhear at any time, we would have misjudged Paul too. Or or maybe even judged him rightly in a sense, just not seeing the full the full depth of what, what God was doing in that. So I think it's worth letting these names and and their faces, their stories confront us a bit and and remind us of Paul's humanity. Again, not for the sake of reconstructing a history, but precisely so the spirit can speak to us about our own faces, our own stories and, and how easily we, we leap to conclusions about what's happening in our lives and the lives of people around us and, and to draw attention to the ways in which we're speaking of one another, right? That there, there's a kind of liturgy of blessing here. You know, when Paul is, Oh, that's a great point. Again and again, naming beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, Right, the Onesimus is faithful and beloved brother, and the these are co-workers, right? Epaphras, servant of Christ. The, he's always striving in prayer on your behalf. Like the, these are ways in which Paul is formally, liturgically, publicly affirming and restoring and empowering these people around him: Nympha, Luke the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think we're intentional enough about that. Like we're, we're not intentional enough about the lit- liturgies of blessing and affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, maybe a silly question here, but I, I do kind of wonder why, I mean it, because like blessing is throughout, <laughs> throughout the scriptures that we're, we're reading each week. Like why why has this not this liturgy not kind of taken hold? I mean, I can't I can't speak for everyone, but I mean, I'm just thinking about you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, churches sure. I've been a part in of. our circles. In our circles, is because yeah. we're liturgically impoverished. Yeah, and you know, we we did have and and, and these things, of course, can sour. They can rot. Yeah, right? it, it's it's possible for liturgical speak to become rote, 
You know, like when, when you're referring to someone as pastor, when someone calls you pastor, Chris, or father, Chris, mm-hmm. like that is a liturgy of blessing, but it, it can rot, you know, it can sour. And what, what keeps it from souring is, is a kind of attentiveness, a kind of thankfulness, attentiveness to and thankfulness for what that gives you. When, when someone calls you father or calls you pastor, letting that strike you in ways of gratitude for the calling that's on your life and the grace that God has given you to serve them in that way. And on the other side, when you're calling someone, you know, when you're talking to Steve, pastor Steve, like letting that come out of your mouth as a, as an affirmation to him, right? That this yeah. is, this is not intended to be some calculated deference to his authority, right? It's, it's not, it's not political gamesmanship. It, it can be. And, and I think mm-hmm. in a lot of, in a lot of circles, it, that's absolutely what it is. But it does not have to be right. Like that, right. those there can be sweetness and and light in the way that we name one another. And I think our liturgical impoverishment ha- has a lot to do with kind of middle class, lowbrow sensibilities, where that stuff feels fake to us. Right. But. And, and some of it is fake, right? But there's there's a kind of authenticity that's so stripped down, it it doesn't allow us to be present to one another ecclesially or sacramentally or liturgically, right? We're we're too familiar with each other. So Bonifer talks about this really well, and I, and he sees this in America when he's here. He's not limiting this critique to Americans, but he, he definitely sees it while he's here. He talks about how in life together and other places, how important it is that in the church, we always relate to one another through Christ, not directly. Like uh, my that's right. I remember that. Yeah. So that what, and this is, this is not easy for many of us to practice because we're out of practice. But yeah. what one of her is saying is that we should be able to relate to one another liturgically sacramentally, ecclesially in ways that are not overly familiar and recognize that when you and I are together in worship, I I can't be overly familiar with you. There are things that I, even that I could say elsewhere at another time, you know, over a campfire or at a meal or in the coffee shop or here at my house, you and I can be, can be friends, but there's a, there's a kind of public presence that, that needs a formality that is in service of the community, that is in service of who you are becoming, that doesn't restrict you. And this is, I think, Bonifer's insight. If I'm always too familiar with you, then you are never more than I've known you to be. Like you are simply my friend. Mm-hmm. You're not the Lord's. You're not the bodies. You're not the world's. You're mine. And you're, you're cut down to the size of my intimacy with you. And I think this is a, this cuts right across all of our relationships, not just friendships, not just our relationships with those who are called to have authority in our lives, but our spouses, our children, right? Our parents, like they're, they're, this is lost on a lot of us because we've, we've collapsed distinctions that shouldn't have been collapsed and, and we've ended up impoverished. Again, that's not to say that the litur- the more robustly, richly liturgical communities don't have problems. They absolutely do. And all of these liturgies can sour and rot, as I keep saying. But 
mm-hmm. we're better off with them than without them. Yeah. If we live them wisely, I think, I think, and one more example from the text, Paul is letting them know, listen, Tychicus and Onesimus, they're insiders. Like they've seen behind the curtain, but I'm not going to write that in a letter. <laughs> right. They'll tell you what they think they need to tell you. You can ask them personally. Right. I mean, think about what he says to the Corinthians. You have homes to eat and drink in. This is a place for the Eucharist. If you want to have that kind of meal, do it at home. Like there, right. there, there are things that are appropriate there that are not appropriate here. Mm-hmm. And like losing that, that sense of sacred time and space, often in the name of being more spiritual, Right, that we're we're not going to be religious because we're we're spiritual. We're we're so close to Jesus, we don't we don't have to bother with these kinds of liturgical and ecclesial distinctions. We don't realize that we're we're sawing off the branch we're supposed to be sitting on. Man, I think to this point, Chris, about the ways that that kind of familiarity allows us to cut people down to the size, precisely to the size of our intimacy or kind of perceived, mm-hmm. perceived knowing, but also going back to the text here with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's say that, let's say that Onesimus is at that kind of, you know, most familiar reading of Philemon He's this, he's this runaway slave. The fourth chapter of Colossians begins with the end of the household codes, which is actually a word about two, two masters and slaves, mm-hmm. right? Masters treat your slaves justly and fairly free. You know that you have a master uh, in heaven. And he calls... Um, and of course, just a few verses earlier, Paul says a word to slaves, which is uh, to obey your earthly masters in everything, not with the slavery performed merely for looks to please people, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. I, I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead too much here because I'm really looking forward to us getting into the household codes um, some more. But thinking about that kind of familiarity, I mean, I have to imagine. <laughs> that Paul has exactly this in mind. I mean, this is, this is part of that. This is part of that liturgy. I mean, for those who are going to be offended, right. Who he is, he is cut down to size. I know what you are. Yeah. Onesimus. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many thoughts here, but one of them is right at the heart of Christian faith. I mean, and this text, there's a reference to Jesus called justice which means this is a Yeshua, this is a Joshua, who shares the name of Jesus of Nazareth, but is not Jesus. He's not that Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a reminder to us that, I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, is somebody, you know, one body in the room for a lot of people. Like, and, and Paul has to insist that we used to know him after the flesh. We do not know him that way any longer. Right? There was a time in which we thought this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was just another one of us. Yeah. 
it turns out he's not just another one of us, but the one in, in the language of Colossians, he's the one in whom our lives are hidden in God. He is our life. For yeah. he, He's not a body in the room. He is the reality in which the room and all the bodies fit. Right. But we didn't know that at the time. When we knew him after the flesh, he was just an, you know, another guy with a particular mm-hmm. look and sound and feel that you know, we, we had these thoughts about. And then suddenly our eyes are opened, right? That eye-opening experience has to happen for each person, not just for Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, and Pilate's victim, as Jensen says, but Jesus' justice too. Yeah. Right. And Onesimus. Right. And this is why Paul is saying, like, we, we do not know anyone after the flesh. That's exactly the argument he makes. We do not know Jesus after the flesh any longer, nor do we know. We don't know anyone that way. You can't know people that way. That's where the overfamiliarity comes from. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I, I think, I mean, there's so many fine lines here, and I, I don't think I can trace them all. I know I can't trace them all. I do think there's a way in which, you know, that, that saying, if people show you who they are, believe them. I think there's something to that. There's a way of knowing the, the other person. You can kind of recognize their character, their bearing, start to sense something about how they relate that you have to adjust to. That you, you have to be open-eyed about, I mean, this person's not dependable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the I, I'm thinking of examples, but I probably don't need to give any. It probably cause more trouble than it would be worth. But part of living by faith and living in the spirit is never letting that kind of penultimate judgment, that awareness of this person usually treats me in this way or usually acting this way, letting that become an ultimate judgment where we foreclose on the possibility of their transformation, right? Where, where there's no room left to pray or no room left to honor them liturgically, sacramentally, ecclesially, prophetically, because we're so familiar, we've we've made our we've drawn our conclusions. Now, I think there are a lot of times in which we're familiar or overly familiar with people, and we misjudge them. There are other times in which we're familiar with people enough to judge them rightly. We know what their character is like, mm-hmm. but still, to live by faith is to find spaces, appropriate spaces, like the church, like the liturgy, like the sacraments where you're able to honor them for what they are becoming, for what the Lord will make them to be, for what the what they are as a member of the body, even if personally you know there, there are uh, troubles there. Right? And yeah. I, that requires, again, those are, I can't draw all those fine lines, but hopefully you can sense the kind of nuance I'm talking about here, the intricacy of the various ways in which we relate to each other. And I, I think we, we practice this, but most of us do it, or at least many of us do it pretty haphazardly. Like we, we know we have to do this, right? But we don't, we don't always do it thoughtfully. We don't always do it, do it well. And just to give a few examples, right? For example, you know, say, say you're a coach and your son or your daughter is, on the team. Like you understand, like you're a coach for all of these players. You can't relate to your child in a way that shows favoritism. Like, so we get that and we understand what that might mean here. Or you're a teacher and your, your spouse is a 
is one of the students in the class and so on and so on. Like we, we recognize this, right? Your, your, your father happens to also be your boss. Right. Countless examples from life where we know we have to be able to take on different dimensions of roles. But I, I think we want, we don't want formalism. We don't want traditionalism. We don't want ritualism. We don't want clericalism. But we do want robust liturgical and ecclesial practices that allow room for that kind of engagement in which we can give honor to whom honor is due, even when we're aware, perhaps mistakenly convinced that this person is unreliable or perhaps rightly convinced, but but still have room to to speak blessing Mm -hmm. appropriately. What do you think the difference is then? I mean, well, I, I guess the difference becomes really evident, um, but h- how might we navigate in having these kind of robust liturgical and ecclesial practices that aren't some of those isms you just named? Well, I, th- I think I, you can't make it up for yourself. You, you have to, I think, pray into it and let let the Lord lead you to people who are already practicing it. I, I don't think that's something you can, you can invent whole cloth. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people are called to do that, but for most of us, no, I mean, yeah. it's going to look like becoming Lutheran or becoming Catholic or becoming Anglican or, or something. It's going to, it's going to look like giving yourself to an accumulated wisdom to a tradition. Right. To this point, and speaking here about these kind of liturgical practices, I mean, one of the things that's we, we need to talk about Epaphras, yeah, as well. But maybe before we even do that, looking at just the second to last verse here in this chapter, and say to Archbus, see that you complete the task that you have received from the Lord. Mm. You know, prior to our conversation, I mean, it seems obvious, but I mean, that that is always the danger, right? I mean, the kind of our familiarity or what we perceive as our familiarity with the text just allows allows us, allows me to just gloss over things and not even think about them when they're right there. But I mean, Paul is telling the believers, like, here's the liturgical action I need you to take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say to Archippus, see that you complete the task yeah. that you have received from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, we don't know exactly, but it's possible. Like one, one reading would be that Epaphras, he says in the letter, like that you learned this from him. You learned this gospel from him. Right. But now Epaphras is with me in prison. He's my fellow prisoner. Mm-hmm. And has shared with me about you. It, it may be that Epaphras is the bishop, the maybe even the founding bishop for these communities, these churches who are meeting the various houses in the cities there in that region. Nymphas ha- has a church in her house. You know, Philemon has has a church. So there are numbers of churches, perhaps all under Epaphras's care, his shepherding. And then for whatever reason, Epaphras gets called away to Paul. And perhaps, again, I don't think 
we know for sure or need to know for sure, but it's possible that Archippus is being installed in that role. He's being given responsibility. He's the bishop elect in, 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 yeah. in effect. And I think, again, I don't want to build everything on that possibility, but if, if we take that seriously, one of the things that underlines is it, it underlines this, the liturgical dimensions of what are said, what's said here, because it is clear. Paul is not saying to him, Archippus, you need to make sure you complete the work God has given you to do. Right. He's telling the congregation to tell him, although of course this is being read in front of them all, including Archippus, right? Like it's, it's being, I mean, it, it, it's really important, right, to see the ways in which Paul is calling for a liturgical act, a congregational act, yeah, a moment of blessing. Right. This is actually the work of the people. <laughs> people, let's yes, do this. The work of the people. The work your and and what I love about the thought that he's the the bishop elect is that they're not only because of what it means to me personally right now, but also because it's a case of the congregation saying to him, "We need you to do what you're called to do for our sake." complete the work you've been given to do is care for us, bring us to perfection, bring us to right. maturity. And that kind of, that kind of affirmation. I mean, that in my own life, and I think in the life of most of the ministers I know in the circles I move in, right? So low church, free church circles where people feel called to ministry and are sometimes ordained, but, it, it, it's understood to be a call from God. There's often a sense of a, need, a lack of hearing that call from the people, mm-hmm. right? That the call is not just from above. It's also from beside and before. Yeah. And like there, I mean, I think there are some people who are called by God and the, the prophetic figures who are, who are called, even if no one else sees it, even even if no one ever affirms it. But these roles, the roles of caring for people, pastoral roles, you do need affirmation from the people. You do need to hear. It's, it's virtually impossible to do the work well if you're not being affirmed. And again, some of that needs to be familiar. Some of that needs to be intimate. But I think the framework needs to be liturgical. The structure for it needs to be public. It, it needs to, to be institutionalized. And then allowing that framework to guide our affections and to guide our language. Right? I, I think we didn't talk about this in your study, and we may come to it in another conversation. But I'm really struck by the connection between what Paul tells them to do and then what he himself does. Right. So earlier in chapter 4, he tells them to devote themselves to prayer and prayer that is kind of kept awake by thanksgiving. So like let your thanksgiving, your gratitude, like keep your prayer alert and devote yourself to that. Pray for us that God will open the door and that even while I'm in prison, I'll be able to do the work I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Conduct yourself wisely with outsiders. Let your speech be gracious seasoned with salt, like that kind of seasoned speech. And and one aspect of kind of over-familiarity are, are putting too much weight on authenticity means that our speech isn't salted. We serve everything raw. That's right. We yeah. say everything that comes to our mind when we when it comes to our mind, the way it comes to our mind. 
And you cannot live in community that way. Again, I'll reference Bonifer, right? Like maybe the most important thing we do for other people is not say what occurs to us, right? The ministry of holding our tongue, as he puts it. Yeah. And then Paul practices that. Like all of this speech at the end, these these conclusions, these aren't throwaway lines, right? This is speech seasoned with salt, right? These are prepared remarks, yeah. Right. They're not raw. And, and again, there there is a space for raw speech, mostly prayer, but there is a space for that. But I think the framework for it has to be seasoned speech, prepared speech, speech that's had time to simmer and to, to brew. And I think that... The fruit of that, the fruit of that, I mean, I'm mixing metaphors now, but that that's what we see at the end of this letter, right? That Paul, Paul has his speech is seasoned. Mm-hmm. So that season that speech, he says, so that you may know how to, how you ought to answer everyone. Yeah. What's the correlation between the kinds of answers that we're able to give and the seasoning and, and our speech being seasoned or our knowing how to answer? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with what happens when you, when you bide your time, right? So like abiding in God has a lot to do with biding your time, not saying what comes to mind. Just right. because it's come to mind, not acting just because you have an impulse like that, that kind of like in, in the language of the tradition, like letting this, the, letting your alms sweat in your hand, right? like that, that sense of, of carefulness, like you don't want to be frozen. You don't want to be hesitant, but you, you do want to be circumspect, right? You do mm-hmm. want to have reserve and this if this gets overdone, but if we think of meekness as kind of strength under control or strength that's been reined in, then we can live lives that are again, under control that aren't, aren't simple, that aren't always raw, that aren't always impulsive, that aren't always explosive, but are, are, self-controlled, the culminating fruit of the spirit. And that's all tied to the way that we speak or don't. And I, I think, I mean, Lauren Winter's book, The Dangers of Christian Practice is a really important warning here. I don't think that liturgy by and of itself does this for us. There's no, there's no kind of mm. guarantee that if you get your liturgy right, every soul that practices it is going to somehow be attuned to God. But if we do inhabit that those liturgies well, if if we if our liturgies are wise, if they're honed well, if they're if they're crafted well, and then we live with them wisely, then it can attune us. It can at least yeah. be an aspect of the Spirit's work of attuning us, and we need more of that. We we need we need better liturgies, and we need wiser teachers and and to be better students learning how to inhabit those those ways of speaking and acting posturing ourselves i mean you know we're just a few days away from the coronation 
the, the king is going to be uh, King Charles. We're not that far from like the funeral of his mother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not that far removed from the marriage of the royals, right? And, you know, Bishop Curry's sermon or Bishop William's sermon, Archbishop. I, I, all of those, I mean, those are just coming to mind for me because earlier today I saw the the news about King Charles' coronation. But I, I think there, that's an example of how public ceremony has, again, it can rot, it can sour, but when it is right, it is life-giving, it is orienting, it's grounding, it's it allows us to kind of know who we are. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this is not some kind of defense of the monarchy. That's not the point. It is, it is though, a defense of liturgy. Like I do yeah. think we need um, practices like that. Public practices, civic practices, as well as ecclesial ones. I mean, we're, we've talked mostly here about the church, but I think the same is true politically and civically. We, we have to have, you know, manners in that way. And uh, not to reduce the life we're called to to niceties. Again, those yeah. can, can be incredibly destructive. It can, you know, Howard Wass's wonderful line about Southern hospitality is a calculated form of cruelty. Yes. <laughs> but there are patterns of hospitality that you can learn that foster genuine friendship and genuine intimacy and genuine neighborliness. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I just don't want us to overvalue the raw, right? The, the unprepared, because I, right. I don't think, while, while I can, you know, I've, I've repeatedly said, I think that the formal can go wrong. The informal goes wrong a lot more. <laughs> so as, as bad as the formal can be, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be. It's not. It's not even in the same stratosphere of damage caused as what happens informally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a great point. Um, well, I mean, you tell me, I, there, there's a lot more here. Well, yeah, and we don't, do, I mean, we'll, do, we'll do, do a bunch of these conversations. It's, you know, we're about an hour in right now. So let's, let's, let's turn it to this for now and, um, kind of let this first conversation rest with some reflection on the, what happens when we think about Paul's chains? So like if we take, if we go back to that line, remember my chains, mm-hmm. like how does it start to affect the way we hear, hear the letter? Yeah. Well, I think, I, I mean, there's a lot of ways, right? As we've already mentioned, but part of what, Part of what strikes me is, of course, Paul is writing to believers and kind of that we're beginning here with the very end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I know we're, we're going to actually read the letter in its entirety. And it's it's easy. I mean, it's for a let. I mean, this is a letter that can be read very easily in one sitting mm-hmm. um, personally. And, and, and of course, in this case, to the congregation. Um. 
but part of what part of what hits me coming back to that point of he he is an apostle and he's writing to believers mm-hmm. is that there's a way that he's you know this what he what he's offering to them bears this mark of legitimacy that's that's precisely in this right precisely remember this yeah in in right precisely in his suffering i mean it's of course in philippians right this is where he says i i want to know christ in this in the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings so that i might somehow attain the resurrection from the dead yep right that there is this kind of like to know christ in the power of his resurrection is to share in the fellowship yeah. Of of Jesus' sufferings, mm-hmm. and here here is Paul suffering, and I have to imagine that, given the fact that it it is God's will that he has been made into an apostle, that and of course it bears out more explicitly elsewhere in other letters that yeah. this is so much of his heart. Right, he wants them. Right. If this isn't just a prayer for Paul. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Yeah. Like I want you, I want you all to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. So I think that's, I mean, that's one of the directions that I would want to go. Yeah. And I think we, we don't want to do less than kind of remember that, that initial line of signification, signification that, like to be an apostle was to meet with resistance at every turn, right? Like that these, mm-hmm. these men and women, and there were women who take on this responsibility. Most of them die for it. All of them suffer for it. Yes. Right? And that again is obvious. It should go without saying, but in our circles, it does not right. That, that, that the will of God is not for Paul to suffer, but there is no way for Paul to live the will of God without suffering. Right. So Under the conditions is, of this world. He is in change. He is restricted, right? So like the word that Jesus says to Peter, like in your life, you, you've put on your belt and gone where you wanted to go. But now, right. yeah. now, now that you have this apostolic call on you, you're not going to go where you want to go. Other people are going to lead you there. And this image of the chains, and there again, there's so many levels of resonance here, but it's not simply that Paul suffers. It's that Paul is restricted. He cannot do everything he wants to do. Yeah. And this is why there's, there's, this is not just a reference to what the Romans have done to him. It's something that Jesus has done to him. He's not just a prisoner because of Jesus or prisoner because people are resisting what he's saying about Jesus. That's true. I mean, he's, yeah. he is, you know, read acts. I mean, he, he gets imprisoned because of his witness to Jesus, but there is a way in which the spirit has arrested him. There is a way in which the work itself well, limits him, right? He's chained yeah. by that. And I mean, I, I'm thinking, and I don't have the text in, in front of me. Actually, I will. If you'll give me a second, there's a passage in Lamentation that talks about God putting chains on us. Um, mm-hmm. Hold on a sec. Yeah, Le- Lamentations 3. 
I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones, besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Oh, I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with stones. He has made my paths crooked and so on and so on and so on. What happened, what's happening here, right? I mean, again, lines and levels, but in part what's happening is this kind of prophetic experience of the resistance that grace makes to the evil in the world. Right? So he's, he's being enveloped in the experience of God being against him, right? Which again is not truly God against him, but it is the force of grace shattering all the lies, all the corruption. You know, it, it, it's severe. It is. Yeah. It is ferocious. And he is, I think, accurately describing what the experience is like. This is, and God is acting. Like he's not simply wrong here. Like God is acting, but, but he, he refers to it as God has put me in chains. Yeah. So when Paul says, remember my chains, he's not just talking about the chains the Romans have put on him because some of the Jewish leaders have betrayed him, including some of the Christian Jewish leaders, the, the followers of Jesus, but also because God, the weight of God is on him. Right, the the kabod is is on him, so that that's a dimension. But then there are also there's another layer to this in which chains appear in the temple, in the tabernacle, setting off like so. Solomon sets up chains to section off um, parts of the sanctuary. The there there are there's a line I think it's in Job that talks about the stars being held together by chains. Right, so there's there are other resonances here about what how Paul is being held together, right? Like how how things not just restricted, yeah. not just oppressed, not just under you know just being struck down by God, but also how Paul is being being led, being set apart. I mean, there's just kind of endless resonance here, right? For what it might mean for him to be in chains. And what it might mean for them to remember it, not just again to know Paul suffers, but to somehow participate in it, to somehow enter into it, suffering, suffering with him. And I think the like, understanding that somehow all of that holds together, the chains that bind us, that, that, that is not only a way of naming restriction and the, the limits that are set for us. It's also yeah. a way of talking about what holds us together, right? I mean, right. this is what marriage is. I mean, marriage is a binding yeah. restriction. It's a, it's a covenant in which you are kept. But it's also free. And you can't have that freedom without that restriction. You can't have yeah. that. You can't have that keeping without that being kept. And I, 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 all of that and much, much, much more, right, of course, fits inside Paul talking about his imprisonment and, and talking about being 
chained. Yeah. I, I think that this is, I, I mean, it, it is one of my expressed desires in our, in, in the small group. Uh, and I, I think, I, I hope it can also come out e- even among in the various guests we're going to have on to talk about this, but that this remember our, remember my chains is, will just keep showing up for us and continue to color the way we read this, yeah. this letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think I think that's right. That if you read this letter well, you will be, you know, chained to Paul. You'll be drawn into the chain of being. You will be, you know, cordoned off with Paul, and so on and so on. Like all all of those dimensions will will take you in if mm-hmm. if you're reading spiritedly, faithfully. Yeah. So I think I think what we'll do next, if it's good with you, we'll we'll end this one here, pick the next one up at the, at the beginning of the letter, and and kind of work from okay, there. Um, and and yeah, see where see where it takes us. But um, for now, I think okay. this is probably a good a good spot to you know to draw the line, put up a chain here to set off good <laughs> to set off the section. Perfect. I, I want to suggest the title for this first episode as abandonment belongs to intimacy. <laughs> See, yeah, to, no, that's not going to happen. I can assure you. <laughs> I can assure you of that, but we will, we'll do another next time we record, which hopefully it'll just be in a couple of days. We'll, uh, we'll have another selection from the, the 20 year old journal. Good. I'm <laughs> right, so man. glad. It's good. I'm glad we got to do this and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Okay? Likewise. Peace. Bye.